0: You are listening to Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Well, just over three years ago in my exposition of the Book of Acts, I sat down on Acts fighting 2529, and spent a whole hour expounding the implications of Peter's great dictum, We must obey God rather than men. Little did we know then how our understanding of that text and our practice of the biblical principles embodied in Peter's assertion would be tested by the surprising events brought on in the last year to our country. I have sensed in myself, in you, and in conversations with other Christians a pressing need to revisit some of the issues in that message and consider their application to our present circumstances. And so it's my purpose, therefore, to consider this Lord's Day evening and the next the subject of the Christian's relationship to civil authority, pressing principles for the present time. We will, in this brief treatment, consider three such principles on their application. Those three principles, and there are many others we could look at, but those three principles will correspond to and be based on probably one of the three most important passages in the New Testament on this subject. We will turn in our Bibles this evening to Romans thirteen one to 7. Then next week, we'll look at Acts five twenty nine and Matthew 22. Those are the passages one of which I just mentioned, Peter's great statement, we must obey God rather than men. And then Jesus' significant statement, that we must render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. So Romans this, this evening, Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, For nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor." So tonight my purpose is to expound the first pressing principle with regard to your relationship to civil authority from Romans 13, 1 to 7. And I'll tell you at the outset that I think that this passage has often been badly misunderstood. In fact, in recent conversations, I think it's been both badly misunderstood and wrongly applied in our present circumstances. So Romans 13, 1 to 7 And here's the first pressing principle that I want to open up from this passage. It's this. Human authority is divine in its origin. Now, this applies, of course, to more than civil authority. It applies to the family and the uh, the fathers and the parents' authority. It applies to the church and the authority of the pastors and elders of the church. But here, (coughs) and in our present situation... We are dealing with the authority of civil government. And we want to see that civil government is divine in its origin and authority. And we want to look at three things from Romans 13 this evening. First, we want to look, first of all, its true occasion, the true occasion of this passage, why it was written. Then we want to look at the actual objective of this passage, what was Paul actually trying to get Christians to see And then finally, we want to look at its real obligation. What was he trying to get them to do? So first of all, it's true occasion. Romans 13, 1-7 is often viewed simply as an extended command to obey the government. Many appear to think that it's equivalent to some pastor today exhorting his congregation not to cheat on their taxes and obey the traffic laws. It seems from such teaching and preaching that we are to think that Roman Christians were breaking traffic ordinances by blocking traffic with their food carts or sales stalls. Or maybe that some young Christians were, you know, racing down one of the Roman streets in their donkey carts. Such a view of the occasion of Romans 13 is both terribly naive and vastly wrong. Why did Paul... Right, Romans 13, 1 to 7. It was something much more deadly and dangerous than these things that I've mentioned, which he was warning the churches in Rome against. He was warning them to have nothing to do with the revolutionary and terrorist movements that were once more seeping through Jewish communities in the Roman Empire. Of course, the events of Jesus' incarnation his life, his death, his resurrection. These events are so huge in the pages of the New Testament that it's easy to miss the fire burning in the background in the entire New Testament. And that fire burning in the background in the entire New Testament was the Jewish rebellion against the Roman Empire. So let me briefly supply you With several reasons why this must be considered, at least as the main occasion for Paul's lengthy exhortation to the Roman Christians on the subject of government. The appreciating context is significant. Remember, Paul's just coming off telling the Roman Christians, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible so far as it depends on you. Be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And on he goes. Paul is there in the preceding context warning the Roman Christians against a thirst for violence filled by the emotion of revenge. Such was the oppression of their imperial Roman masters that such a desire for revenge against them was certainly a clear and present danger. But not only that, there's the succeeding context. Remember in Romans 14, Paul begins to speak of the weak Christians at Rome. Look at Romans 14:1 to 5 Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things. But he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. He will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, who do you suppose these weak Christians were? These weak Christians with scruples about food and scruples about the religious calendar. Well, you know who they were. They were Jews. They were Jews. They were, of course, at least mainly the Jewish Christians in Rome. Now, this is not just my conclusion. It's the conclusion of the mass of commentators on these verses as well. Though the Roman Christians were primarily composed of Gentile Christians, it is clear from Romans, as you read it, that there was not just a very large Jewish population in Rome itself. Some have estimated that 10% of the population of Rome was Jewish. But it's also clear from Romans that there there was a large fraction of the Roman Christians who were Jews. Jews with typical... Jewish weaknesses. It's not hard to imagine that they had weaknesses about food and weaknesses about days, that they had weaknesses about politics. If so, they would have been very vulnerable to the attraction of the militant wing of Judaism and Jewish nationalism. A third thing we know Is that there was a Jewish terrorist and revolutionary movement active in the Roman period, Roman Empire, during the very period in which Christianity was born? The books of the New Testament, in the main, are written against the backdrop of this bubbling Jewish discontent and finally Jewish rebellion against Rome. I was reminded of this this week in my devotions when I read there in Acts 21 when Paul has been mobbed by by a a mob of Jews that wanted to kill him and pull him into pieces, and he's rescued by the Roman Kiliarch, the Roman general. As he was about to be brought into the barracks, Acts 21 says, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. This is a reference to an Egyptian Jew that led, what does it say, 4,000 assassins? You know another way to translate the word assassin? Dagger men. And he led them into the wilderness, obviously, with the intent of rebellion. But then you also have in Acts chapter 4, the words of Gamaliel reminded us of this bubbling Jewish uh, <clears throat> Jewish terrorist movement that is the background of the New Testament. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, respected by all the people, stood in the council, gave orders to put the men outside. He said, Men of Israel, take care of what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census, drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So you see, burning in the background of the great story of Jesus in the New Testament is this bubbling, this bubbling Jewish terrorist movement. And you do recall, don't you, the false charge upon which Jesus was crucified? Jesus was crucified under the false charge that he was a revolutionary. This was the construction they put upon his complaint to be king of the Jews. And it was for this this misconstruction of what it meant for him to claim to be king of the Jews that they crucified him. The great irony was, you remember, that they actually released somebody who really was a revolutionary and a terrorist. Barabbas was guilty, the text of Luke says, of insurrection and murder in the city. Well, all of that would be enough, but we remind ourselves of the Olivet Discourse contained in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. In each one of them, Jesus warns his disciples to flee Jerusalem before the coming Jewish destruction of the Jews by the Roman legions as they put down the Jewish rebellion. And, finally, we remember that as the Jewish community throughout the Roman Empire was then smoldering with revolutionary feeling and terrorist action, we remember that this is the letter to the Romans. And it was written to a Christian community then, located at the heart of the Roman Empire. It was written to a Christian community with a large Jewish minority. And it was written less than 10 years before the Jewish rebellion broke out in Palestine that Jewish rebellion would bring down on the Jews in Jerusalem the might of the Roman Empire, lead to the destruction of Jerusalem and the rebuilt temple, and conclude, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian with the crucifixion of a million Jews outside Jerusalem. Now, it was not breaking the traffic laws that was the reason that Paul wrote Romans 13. It was this... The danger of involvement by Christians in the Jewish terrorist and revolutionary movement. Now do you see how anemic, insipid, and simply wrong is the idea that the point of Romans 13 is just obey the government. Paul is not concerned with something so comparatively trivial as whatever the first century equivalent was of the traffic laws of Rome. He was not concerned with Christian salesmen parking their food carts in front of the arena so people couldn't get in. Paul is deeply concerned to say, don't have anything to do with the revolutionary and terrorist political views of many Jews. Do not find in Christianity any pretext or permission to engage in violence against the government of Rome. And this leads to my second point the actual objective of Romans 13. What is Paul's main objective, then, in Romans 13? Well, if you turn back to the passage, you can see plainly what it is. It is to assert the divine origin and institution of the Roman government and the duty of Christians to recognize it as appointed of God. Look at Romans 13, verse 1. For there is no authority except from God. And just to be clear here, Paul says, those which exist right now are established by God. And Romans 13.4, Therefore whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And, pardon me, that's Romans 13.2. And Romans 13.4 The the Roman rulers are called a minister of God. And then in verse 6, they are called, uh, Paul says, that rulers are servants of God. Now, I can't go into it, but there's a gigantic and rich theological foundation behind the assertions of Paul here. It has to do with God's judgment on the sinful kingdom. Remember Amos 9, the sinful kingdom of the Jews? That judgment which was right then in the background of the New Testament against providing the backdrop for the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and the gospel of Christ. It was that God's judgment on the sinful kingdom of the Jews was coming to fulfillment in just that time of the first century. Those who sought to restore the Jewish kingdom who thought they were doing the will of God were actually opposing God, not doing his will. It was God's will. These people now be subject to the kingdoms that he had appointed to rule over them until Christ returned during what Jesus called the times of the Gentiles. These these governments were not simply willy-nilly uh, somehow rising to authority. They came to power over the Christian communities and over the world, says Paul, by the appointment of God, and Christians were to recognize. But these were God-appointed authorities. Now, uh, I'm not going to go into it, and there are lots of things that need to be discussed here, but you can't you see how uh, these, this has great implications for all the revolutionary theories that have arisen within and plagued Christendom? Again and again and again, Christians have said or implied that governments have to meet certain standards in order to be worthy of their recognition. They have to meet certain standards in terms of their origin or conduct to deserve to be recognized as a true government, deserving of the Christian's submission. All such theories, of course, run into huge problems in Romans 13. The government to which Paul commands submission is the Roman Empire, folks. It had originated in Roman wars of aggression. Its leadership was ignoble. The last three emperors had been Claudius the Clown, whose foolishness brought shame on him and the empire. Then there had been Caligula, who almost started the Jewish war 30 years earlier by trying to sacrifice a pig in the temple. And Caligula, the despicable, who in his perversions had done things I can't even tell you about in public. And any guess who the emperor was now when Paul was writing. You know your history. You know that his name was Nero. Yes, it was Nero himself. And yet Paul calls this government an empire ordained of God and requires the Christian submission to it. Was Paul really telling the Roman Christians that they had to obey everything this government said? Or to do even almost all they said that they should do? Well, that's quite doubtful, frankly. But then what is the obligation exactly which Paul is pressing on the Roman Christians with regard to this government? And that's my next and last point. It's real obligation. Now I need to ask you to pay really careful attention here. Because we need to make a really important distinction. It's a very practical distinction, but it's a really important distinction. But it's one that I think people kind of gloss over all the time. The Apostle Paul does not say here that Christians should obey the government of Rome. He never uses words that mean obey or disobey in this passage. He speaks rather of subordination to this government and not resisting or opposing this government. These words, well, yes, you're saying, does, doesn't that mean they'd normally obey? Yeah, it probably does mean that they would, there would be a disposition to obey if they could. But these words, while they may usually imply the duty to obey the government, actually speak of something quite different. The word used in verse 1 means to subordinate yourself to someone. It speaks literally of putting yourself under someone's authority or recognizing their authority over you. Now that's a little different than obeying everything they say, right? I think so. The words resist and oppose used in verse 2 speak of revolutionary violence against the government. They speak of actual hostility towards someone and not just disobedience. They speak of armed resistance. One of the words used here is used in Ephesians 6.13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will not be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm. And thus, Paul is not speaking merely of disobeying the government. He is speaking of actual armed resistance to the Roman government, and he is saying to the Christians in Rome, have nothing to do with it. Now, you may ask, what are you saying, Pastor? Are you saying that we don't have to obey the government? Well, of course I'm not saying that. Usually, subordination to an authority means that you obey its commands, right? Right? Well, what I am saying is that is not exactly obedience. It is not exactly obedience of which Paul is speaking, but of the larger duty of subordination. Perhaps an illustration will help you. Suppose I'm counseling a woman who is married to a really bad man. She's recently become a Christian. She was a really bad woman. (laughs) Okay, now she's a Christian. But he has not become a Christian, nor has he deserted her, Nor has he committed adultery against her. Yes, he looks at pornography without shame. Yes, he sometimes gets drunk and calls her names. Yes, he is really hard to get along with in every way. But she has nothing that looks like a biblical right to a divorce. Now, what will I say to this poor woman? I will have to tell such a poor woman that she must continue to submit to the man as her husband. She must recognize her authority as her husband. But when I say that, you understand, don't you, that I am not telling her that she always has to obey him. That's different, right? Of course not. I'm not saying that she always has to obey him. When he complains about her reading her Bible, she should disobey and pay no attention. When he tells her not to go to church, she should disobey When he tells her to sit down and watch some wicked, X-rated movie with him, she should disobey. Now, here's the question. When she disobeys in those ways, does that make her a wicked, rebellious, unsubmissive, and insubordinate wife? No. No, it doesn't make her that at all. Uh, there's 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 an occasion in Daniel 6 well, we remember Daniel's tossed into the lion's den because he won't obey the king's edicts. And his defense is this, I've done nothing against the king. Well, he certainly had disobeyed his edict. But you see, he had not attacked his authority. And that's something else. So you see, we've got to make this big distinction between subordination and obedience. This big distinction between disobedience and revolution. That's a biblical distinction, and it's gigantically important, folks. And a lot of Christians aren't making it today. So the Christians in Rome were to recognize the authority of Rome. But if you think that they, that meant they had, they did not often have to disobey many of its commands, you have another thing coming, right? The Roman government often commanded things that were absolutely sinful or which vastly exceeded its authority and jurisdiction. In such situations, the Christians might have to disobey or at least would have the option of disobedience. We'll talk about that next week. But it is an absolute trivializing of what Paul is saying in Romans 13 to think that he is concerned primarily about obeying or disobeying the government. He is concerned about revolt, terrorism, and violence. Well, several brief applications before I'm done then. What is the great principle with regard to the Christian's relation to civil government, which we must derive from this passage? It is that the Christian must recognize that even the very imperfect civil authority under which they find themselves must be seen as having a divine origin. And this divine origin requires them to submit or subordinate themselves to it. And out of that basic principle, the divine origin of civil government, there are several specific applications I want to tell you about. First, Romans 13 teaches that the Christians should never get involved with revolutionary movements or terrorist, uh, terrorist activities against the government. <laughs> you may say, Pastor Sam, that's really unrealistic and theoretical. I really hope it is. I really do hope it is. But just in case it isn't unrealistic and theoretical, you need to hear what I'm saying tonight. So let me say it once more. And clearly, Christians do not engage in violent resistance or terrorist acts on the government. To paraphrase John Kelvin, and this is what he wrote to the French Reform, who were dying for their faith in France, he says, better that we should all die then that Christianity should become known as a terrorist movement. Second application. Romans 13. Romans 13 does not teach that the Christian should never disobey the government. It does not even teach that, that the Christian must almost always obey the government. No. Some of you who are listening closely to this may... Think that or been told that. Some of you may have heard this passage used as a club to beat Christians into obedience to the government, but that's not what the passage is exactly talking about. Now, you may be beginning to wonder exactly what I'm saying here. Well, there's a cliche nowadays, you've heard it. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Right? I'm not saying, I'm just saying. I'm not saying that we should disobey the social distancing policies or the mask mandates imposed on us as a church by our civil rulers. Yet. I am saying that Romans 13 is not a club with which almost universal obedience to civil government can be enforced on Christians. It's not talking about that, it is talking about revolution. Third application. Romans 13 teaches that the Christian should entrust himself to God and live as a pilgrim and stranger in the earth while the Gentile kingdoms rule. His highest allegiance must be not to any earthly kingdom, but to the God who has given those kingdoms their temporary authority. The way in which many of our countrymen are calling good evil and evil good should remind us all that here we do not have a continuing city. And a lot of times in the United States, we might have thought we had a continuing city, friendly as it was to Christianity. But here we have no continuing city, not even in the United States. That we are citizens of an empire that is coming down from heaven at the last day. That is what we learn here. I love our country. I thank God to live in our country, and so should anybody else who lives here and has ever been anyplace else. And I have been other places, other places, a lot of other places. I think many of the attacks in our country are based on utopian fantasies entirely lacking in historical realism. I think that God calls us to seek the welfare of that Gentile city where God has placed us. At the same time, we are not under obligations as Christians ever to think of the USA as Zion or to follow where it goes under the banner of my country, right or wrong. Because finally, at the end of the day, the USA is a Gentile kingdom, not a theocracy. Yes, it is a Gentile kingdom endowed with much common grace so far but still only a Gentile kingdom and not the kingdom of God. We are citizens fundamentally of the new commonwealth of Israel under the reign of King Jesus. Last application. Romans 13 then teaches that our great hope is the return of Jesus. Until Jesus returns and re-erects forever the theocratic kingdom. This world will be a far less than perfect, just, and fair place to live. This is, in fact, what Paul goes on to say in this very chapter. Here is the moral of the story. Do this knowing the time. That it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its loss. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you for the teaching of your word. The entrance of your words gives us light. and Lord, we come to confess that we need light. We are so far uh, sometimes from knowing what we ought to do We are so confused sometimes by the present situation. We are so uh, 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 frequently having to confess our lack of wisdom. And we do come to you, Lord, to ask that you grant us wisdom. Grant us as pastors, as the people of this church, to know how to walk worthily of the kingdom of God. Help us to know how we should serve you in this present dark and difficult age. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.